Looking for a custom crush partner? Bending Branch Winery offers full-spectrum bend-to-bottle services. The experienced winemaking team specializes in red wine production. Advanced extraction options are available to get the most out of red wine grapes. Join Bending Branch and its clients in producing highly awarded wines. For more information, email Dr. Bob Young at bob at bendingbranch.com. Did y'all know that 97% of U.S. wineries are small and that 85% are classified as very small? That's why it's so hard to find your favorite wines and discover new small producers in stores. Somley wants to make it easier for wine lovers to discover, hear the story, and shop from producers of all sizes. The best part? You can bring the winery experience home with orders delivered right to your doorstep. It's easy and free to support your favorite wineries. At Somley.com, you can search for and favorite wineries, give wineries great reviews, and shop from wineries you won't find in retail. While you're there, you might discover some new ones to visit or even a new wine club to join. That's at Somley.com. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 61. Today, Dan Gatlin joins me to talk about his almost 50 years in the wine industry. We cover a lot of ground, including the development of the wine industry in Napa Valley, the lessons learned in the early years of the Texas wine industry, his unconventional ideas about terroir, and why he wishes the Texas wine industry would have adopted some of the strategies from the Oregon wine industry. But first, the Texas wine news. Whether you're a regular listener or joining for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. VinePair recently named Ray Wilson of Wine for the People to their VinePair 50 list. It's a list of 50 talented individuals in the drinks industry who've caught their attention right now. In a profile, VinePair talks about Ray's minimal intervention winemaking, uniquely Texas terroir, and the environmentally friendly practices that all form the core of her work. VinePair says Wilson's passion for her work is palpable, as is her belief in Texas wine, which should be on the radar of more drinkers, says Ray. The piece summarizes Ray's brands, Dandy Rosé and La Valentia, and mentions her new tasting room in Central Austin. It says, as a member of the LGBTQIA community, Wilson also focuses on creating an equitable wine industry. She's excited to bring wine to the people of Austin, across the state, and beyond. Huge congratulations to Ray. VinePair actually showed several Texas wines some attention this month with an article on 25 of the best red blends for 2023, written by Keith Beavers. Interestingly, the author doesn't give vintages or tell you what's in the blends, but there are six Texas red blends on the list of 25, so who am I to complain? I'll tell you which wines were included on the list and give you just a blurb from the write-up. First, the William Chris Vineyards Enchante. This is a great example of a red blend, a quintessential medium-bodied American red wine. The Farmhouse Vineyards Jackknifed GSM. If a red blend can be comfy, this is it. The Messina Hoff GSM. Oh man, this one is fun. The Colossi Cellars Conchi Heritage Reserve. 
a very balanced palate with good weight. Hilmi Cellars, Politics and Religion. This wine will make you want to book a flight to Texas wine country stat. And finally, C.L. Buteau's Cease and Desist Red Blend. It's giving power with a soft approach. Lana Borlot has a new article in Forbes.com that shines a light on many of the ways that Texas wine women have impacted the state's wine industry. The article, Women in Wine, Focus on Texas, highlights Susan Aller of Fall Creek Vineyards, Meryl Bonarigo of Messinahoff Winery, Glenna Yates of Spicewood and Ron Yates Wines, and the late Diane Tietelbaum. Although not a winemaker or winery owner, she was considered Texas wine royalty. She was one of the first women in the Dallas wine business and was a longtime writer, consultant, educator, judge, and a mentor to many. Although she was an expert in wines made all over the world, she held a firm appreciation for those made in Texas. I was so excited to watch a new documentary about Texas wine and the history of the Texas wine industry. Mark Fesco was hired by the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association to record the footage of their past presidents at the Twigga Conference in 2022, and Mark just recently released the documentary on YouTube after it debuted at the 2023 Twigga Conference. On it, you'll hear many of the past presidents who are interviewed in groups according to their decades of service. It's required viewing for those interested in Texas wine history. Great job, Mark. There are big changes afoot at Cicada Cellars in Stonewall. You can now taste and purchase wines from Bending Branch Winery, Four Eyes Winery, Peter's Prairie Vineyards, and Rising Sun Vineyards, all at Cicada Cellars in Stonewall. That's five Texas wineries under one roof. Each winery offers five wines, and then there are even more from Cicada, so check it out. Newsom Grape Day is an annual gathering of grape growers out at Neil Newsom's Vineyard in Plains, Texas, out on the Texas High Plains. It all started back in 1986, and this year it's happening on April 26th. Folks who are interested in nematodes, biochar, and the intricacies of soil health should definitely attend. Admission is free for attendees, but registration is required to make sure they have the appropriate number of lunches. You can register on the Twigga website. If you've never attended a Texas Hill Country Wineries Roadshow, you do need to rectify that situation just as soon as possible. And your next opportunity to do so is in Austin on the evening of April 17th. There will be 29 wineries present and over 80 wines from the Hill Country will be poured. So go out and meet some winery personalities. There are owners, winemakers, vineyard managers, and more. That will take place at the beautiful Lexus Club at Q2 Stadium. I've loved seeing your pictures and your impressions from all the wine events that have been going on this spring, from Mason to Gainesville to Lubbock. And we are inching closer towards some other big dates that are happening in April. I sure wish I could attend all the things going on across the state, but here's what I am attending. First of all, Rootstock is happening April 15th in Waco, and this is your final reminder to use the code SHELLY for a discounted ticket to come and see 16 or so wineries pouring out at Indian Spring Park. Of course, there are also bands, there's food, tons of fun. Ticket prices go up very soon, so be sure and get yours soon. The following weekend is the Wine and Food Foundation's Toast of Texas happening at Bee Cave on Sunday, April 23rd. 
The main event features a whopping 30 wineries and they're lining Main Street with tasting tables. This is a sip and stroll style event that also features a silent auction, yummy food, and plenty of opportunities to chat with winemakers and winery owners. It is a great day and there's a new game this year. Thanks to Texas Wine Growers, it's a ring toss where you can try to win some very special wines. And there are actually just a few tickets left to the VIP pre-party, which is a members-only event. I've selected five top wines and invited those winemakers or owners to participate in a panel that precedes the main event. And the wineries participating in the VIP are Abastris, Sibonet, Spicewood Vineyards, Uplift Vineyard, and Wedding Oak Winery. So come and hear from those winemakers if you're a member of Wine and Food Foundation. If you live in Austin or really anywhere in the Hill Country and you're a wine lover, you really should consider joining this organization. They've got great educational opportunities, community building events, and their philanthropic purposes support the hospitality industry. Remember that using code SHELLY will get you $10 off of your ticket for the main event. Come raise a glass to Texas Wine and the great work that Wine and Food Foundation does to educate and support wine and food enthusiasts, especially Texas wine enthusiasts. At both of these events, I'll have a table where I'm dispensing free Texas wine recommendations and giving out some cute Texas wine postcards. Hey, it's not much, but we're operating on a shoestring budget, y'all. Find links to all of these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. Today, I want to ask you to tell a friend, a Texas wine-loving friend, to be precise about this podcast. The very best way for the podcast to grow is for listeners to tell their friends and colleagues. So thank you to those of you who have shared the podcast with others. I know many of you listen on your drive into work at a Texas tasting room, or you listen as you're driving from the winery to the vineyard, or maybe you listen while you're working out in the vineyard. Make sure your colleagues and your friends are listening too. And I'm very happy to announce that I've redesigned the podcast website. The new design has some additional features, like the ability to leave a voicemail. I'm still waiting on my first voicemail, but I'm hoping to get a good one and I'll play it for you. I've got a place to do some blog posts on my new website, and there's even a section of Texas Wine resources that you can check out. If you want to get the the behind-the-scenes scoop and be eligible for future giveaways, sign up for the podcast newsletter by visiting thisistexaswine.com. And now for our interview. I've been hearing Dan Gatlin's name ever since I started learning about Texas wine. Dan is the founder and proprietor of Inwood Estates Winery and is one of the early pioneers of the Texas wine industry. He's seen so many changes in the wine business and is almost 50 years in the industry, and we hit a lot of the high points in this conversation. Dan has some unconventional approaches to viticulture in his quest for high-quality grapes, and he also has some strong beliefs about terroir. While you may not agree with everything he says, he certainly is an interesting guy who makes very high-quality wine and has developed quite a following. I enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you will too. So we're sitting here at Inwood Estate Winery in Fredericksburg, Texas, where you produce wine and host tastings and events of all sorts. I see a drum set, so I'm guessing you have some pretty fun parties here. Um, no, actually, actually, 
the drum set is is mine. Uh, it is uh, a holdover from a recording studio that I once had in my younger years, and um, we actually don't do live music. But uh, sometimes at night, I'll come in here and just. Uh, uh, you know, tap around on it myself. Um, I got it out of storage of, uh, about a year ago just because I felt like I had was, as I got older, maybe some of my uh, the r- rhythmic qualities were sliding a little bit, and I thought it was a good thing to kind of hold off, uh, you know, the uh, the old age of uh, of lack of coordination. So excellent. Yeah, that looks like fun. It is fun. Well, we have been talking already about how we have some things in common, including uh, Dallas, Texas. So we have a lot of uh, wine history and personal history to get through. So where where should we start? Um, You mentioned your career before Texas wine. Uh, I know that started around early 1980s, but where where does your wine story begin? So I'm looking at pretty close to 50 years now in the wine industry um, I grew up in Dallas in a family that was in the beverage industry, and um, I had worked in my parents' business ever since I was a kid, to be honest. I was, I was in there, you know, working in the warehouse and setting up store shelves when I was 12. Obviously, when I got out of college, um, I took over our wine division, uh, which, uh, which was kind of a natural thing for me. I was uh, very familiar with all of our product lines, even though at that time, obviously, they were vastly more limited than than they you know would be today. Doing that gave me tremendous access to folks who were uh, very influential in the wine industry around the world. Uh, I was making trips to France and regular trips to California, and was able to spend personal time with people that were actually pretty famous because at that time wine was not really on the American alcohol radar to be honest um i think at in terms of sales at that point in time america was really a spirits consuming country and that was a result of coming out of prohibition uh, coming out of uh, the obviously the the Second World War and coming through the 1950s and 60s, our sales reflected about 55 percent spirits, probably about 30 percent beer, maybe only 15 percent wine. That was pretty pretty normal for what you saw in is, is a distribution in the U.S. But starting in the mid 70s, my my first trip to Napa was in 1975. There was very few wineries there. I don't know exactly what the number is, but I would, wouldn't be surprised if it was under 15 or so. It was, a, it was a really, really low number. I remember walnut orchards and strawberry fields and all those kinds of things right in the middle of Napa Valley. And uh, so that, this was something that you know, just really hadn't, hadn't gelled yet. But from the mid-70s to the mid-80s, it's what I call the wonder years of wine in America that 10-year stretch was a phenomenal run for Americans to become exposed to wine and what it was. And, uh, and it was, you know, the coming of age of my generation, uh, to be honest, the, the baby boomers took to wine. And, uh, and, I mean, in a lot of ways, the rest was history. 
I don't know what the exact number, but by 1985, I know there were hundreds of wineries in, in Napa Valley. This was obviously a, a, a major development. I do know that by the mid-80s, 55% of uh, alcohol sales were wine. And so it had flipped from spirits to wine. The, the beer portion seemed to be relatively, relatively constant. The, uh, the spirits portion definitely took it on the chin um, during that time. But that was really what launched the, the wine industry in the U.S. The reason that that happened... Uh, which I think is is amazing. I always am careful to give credit to the Californians for what they did. There was some, there was a lot of folks there that were really far thinking and very forward thinking kind of folks that charted a course and did amazing things during that time. They really were. Some of them, some of them, are, a few of them are still alive today. Uh, as a matter of fact. But, uh, but it's quite a legacy, and, uh, and a lot of it had to do with, uh, with, with wine quality and ripeness and some of the physiological characters of the, of the grape, which I do want to get into, but maybe we'll, we'll hold off the, on that topic for just a second. I will relate a story, which is kind of like exasperating for people of, of our age today and in today's world, but... It is true that when I took over our wine division in uh, the mid-70s, we were importing Chateau Margaux for $11 a bottle, and we were selling it for $19, and everybody thought that was a really high price. And, of course, today it can be $800,000, even I've seen as much as $1,200 a bottle. We We had Petrus on the shelf for $28, and, of course, it's can be $5,000 a bottle today, you know, depending on the vintage. So uh, that's, that gives you some kind of feeling about how times have changed. And what happened during that 10-year stretch was just unbelievable. I have to ask, did the judgment in Paris make a difference for you immediately? Or has time kind of elevated that story to be one of uh, yeah. more importance than it had at the time? My my, I mean, I'm going to give you my opinion, but for those of us working in the industry during those years, the judgment of Paris was was nowhere on our radar. It was, uh, it was, I think it was looked at as some kind of a fluke that you know was a a funny story, not really taken seriously. I don't think it was really till the '90s or somewhere there at, thereabouts that it started to gain you know the kind of legendary status that it has today. But for for those of us who were day-to-day boots on the ground, it was a non-event. And I think, like I say, there's other things that happened that I think are really important and really did change things, but, but I don't think that was necessarily one of them. It, it wasn't necessarily a media thing. Do you want to mention a couple of categories around what you think made a difference? You said it was a few people um, yeah, in California. Yeah, so there's two storylines to this, and, uh, and, and one to to get into this because it does kind of affect uh, the way that the Texas story has, has gone. When I first started going to Napa, the wine industry there was dominated by the original Italian families. So we had the Wintys, we had the Martinis, we had the Sebastianis, we had, you know, the Mandavis. And their business model was not 
like you know what you think of Napa today. Their business model was what we called full line wineries. Um, they would make I don't know fifteen, twenty, maybe even as much as twenty five or thirty different wines that were inexpensive. They were usually varietals. Some later on down the line, this category uh, became known as fighting varietals, uh, that kind of thing. And I know people think, well, how could there even be that many wines? But I mean, there were things that you didn't, we don't see today. I mean, there was, there was, you know, Emerald Riesling, Gray Riesling, Johannesburg Riesling, White Riesling. I mean, you know, every every kind of stuff that you can imagine, you know, all the French Columbards and all that kind of stuff. And so there was there was all these wines that they would make. And then invariably, just to assure everyone somehow that they could still make good wine, possibly, they would have one wine that they would refer to as their reserve, which is almost always a Cabernet. So, you know, you would have... Uh, 25 wines that basically just fill shells and then you'd have one good wine. When when the Napa folks came along, they had a completely different philosophy. And, and I, I really respect this. And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, maybe this is the, the direction that Texas should have gone in, in my own opinion. But what happened was when, you know, when these folks came along, like, you know, the Chateau Montalenas and the Stag's Leap and, you know, Gurgich Hills and all those people, they they came along and they said, we're not going to make 25 cheap wines. We're going to make only three wines or we're going to make four wines and they're all going to be reserve status and we're not going to make anything below that. That was, in my view, that was brilliant and i think it 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 did so much for their industry and i mean i mean sure they could have turned napa valley into a place to try to compete with modesto i mean they could have gone that direction if they thought that you know that that would be something that would maybe make them more money or whatever but but they had the foresight and the fortitude both to execute the plan and to make fewer wines but of very high quality that decision did so much to revolutionize american wine number one and also number two created enormous financial value for all those folks in in that were in that market it, their their brands became famous. They became, uh, they you know they they were became worth you know untold amounts of money. Um, it, it was it was just wildly successful, and it was a brilliant strategy. And uh, I've always respected them for that. And in a lot of ways, I I kind of feel like um, you know maybe in in Texas we missed an opportunity in a lot of ways to to recreate that kind of a strategy that I think would have been better for us. But anyway, we'll we'll address that as we sure. go forward a little bit more. Now on the other side, there's another issue about the physiological properties of the grapes themselves and the kind of wine that they were able to produce. And the one thing that really captured the American imagination for wine was making wine 
with higher levels of ripeness and lower antioxidants. And that was actually, in a lot of ways, that's the chemical formula. That was the other half of the equation that the Napa folks were able to, you know, uh, understand and execute that made them the success that they became. Again, I was a, I was a wine buyer in both places. I love French wine. I'm extremely familiar with all, all the, I mean, I've, I've barrel tasted at Petrus. I've, I've done harvest at different places. I mean, they're all, they're, they're, they're great people and they've always treated me really, really nicely. And I'm not saying anything against French wine in any way, because I have a huge collection myself, but the issue with French wine for Americans and in the American marketplace was that it was really high antioxidant wine. The longer fruit is in the field, the more the fruit uses its own antioxidants to protect itself from bacteria. So if, if you harvest early then you end up with capturing a lot of those antioxidants in your wine because they're not yet used up. If you are able to leave your fruit in the field longer, then those antioxidants are expended or they're as fuel to protect the fruit from bacteria so that if you harvest, the later you harvest, the lower the level of antioxidants are that's in your wine. Now, the reason I'm going on and on about this, and hopefully we haven't put anyone to sleep over so far, but if you have high antioxidants in your wine, then the problem is you're going to trot down to your local wine store and you're going to get one of those wines, and then you're going to think that you're going to serve it for your friends on Saturday night, but you're not because that wine's going to need 15 years in your wine cellar. And let's face it, Americans are not patient people, okay? I mean, we are what we are. We're, we're an immediate culture. We're, we're not, uh, you know, we're not the kind of folks that uh, are going to say, sure, you know, I'm going to go spend, you know, thousands of dollars on a case of wine that I'm going to drink in 20 years. I mean, we're, it's, just, it's just not in our DNA. In fact, most wine is consumed within an hour of its purchase. Of course, of course. But even fine wine, even fine wine still, I mean, most people... Most Americans are like, sure, you know, I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to buy this wine and I'm going to hold it a year, something like that. We get a lot of that. And when I say this, I say most Americans. I'm not saying all Americans. I have, I have folks that collect Inwood wine and they still have some of the wines that we made in the early 2000s, you know, and they're, they're saying, oh no, we're collecting those. Those are, you know, that's great. Well, that's that's all fine, you know, and I'm not saying it's not true for everyone. There's always been a real small percentage of people that, you know, will collect and, and, and you know, run a wine cellar like that. But on average, Americans are, are, are more immediate than that. So the Californians brilliantly tapped into a market that allowed them to leave their fruit in the field longer, lower the antioxidant level in their wine. I mean, for the first time, wines were coming out of wineries. And I'm, again, I'm generalizing. This is not all of them. But wines were coming out of wineries that were literally ready to drink. And, and I'm not talking about cheap wine. I'm talking about a really expensive wine. And Americans just, I mean, they, they took to that like, 
you know, like, like it was, it was the perfect solution for, for, for their drinking pattern. And, and it was wildly successful. You know, I've, I've been sometimes on panels with Napa winemakers and one time somebody in the audience raised their hand and they said to the Napa winemaker, they said, well, you know, the criticism of your wine is they don't really improve with age. And you know what, you know what he said, and he looked him straight in the face and he said, in five years, there won't be one bottle left. So why am I going to make a wine that peaks in 10 years if in five years every single bottle will be consumed? You know, and, and you know what? He's right. I mean, I, I'm not being critical. That's actually correct. You know, I mean, what's the point? The, the, the point is people are going to open them and they're going to drink them anyway. So, and love um, them. They're ready. And they're ready and, and they love them. And, and, and like I say, I'm not, I'm not being critical in, in any way, shape, or form. They, they just simply showed us a new paradigm, mm-hmm. a paradigm that, that didn't exist in 1968 or didn't exist even in 1973. But you know, by 1975 to 1977, we started seeing these wines filter into the marketplace and people were just wowed. Now, having said that, not everybody in Napa was of one mindset either. Just like, obviously, the Texas wine producers are, are hardly of one mindset. It's a very diverse group. But this is a true story. The first time I visited Camus, uh, I went with actually two of my competitors, sometimes we would had this little, you know, cabal that we would travel around together and sometimes try to pool our money and make better deals and things like that. And, and, uh, and actually there were other kids of other, of other, uh, people in Dallas that I knew. So, um, and actually some that I'd even grown up with all really nice folks, but, uh, we would, we would go together. And the first time we went to Camus, Camus had no distribution outside California, zero. And um, on that day, we made a deal with Charlie. And whenever you visited Charlie, you know, it was always Charlie and overalls. And the meeting took place on, you know, five-gallon buckets turned upside down in the middle of the winery. That was the, that was the normal thing because Charlie was a, was a real for real farmer. We had this, this meeting, and then we struck a deal to bring Camus to the Dallas market. And, of course, it came with uh, some other strings attached. Believe it or not, he actually was launching a, a lower-end line of wines that he wanted to do for cash flow, which was ended up being what was called Liberty School. And so we had a mixture of, uh, of Liberty School and everything. And Charlie looked at us, and, and we said, well, we want X amount of Camus Cabernet you know, to, to go with this. And he said, you're crazy. He said, you're nuts. He said, you'll never sell it. it it'll, it'll sit on the shelf forever. And then I'll never forget this line. He looked us straight in the face and he said, nobody is ever going to pay $25 for Napa Valley Cabernet. He said, it's a pipe dream and it's a fantasy. And well, there you go. So that's <laughs> evidence of, of, uh, of the fact that not everybody in Napa agreed either. You know, there was a, obviously there was a divergence of opinion among those producers as well. Today you have uh, a very perfected model of Napa wines that are, I mean, when someone walks into Total Wine and they get a bottle that says Napa Valley on the, on the label, you know, they're expecting that they're going to be able to serve that wine on Saturday night to their friends, you know, and, and the Napa producers full well know this and, uh, and they do a great job with it. Granted, there's a few, you know, and I can name a few names, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, but sure, there's a few that want to make a more French style wine with a, 
with an earlier harvest and higher antioxidants. And I, and I understand that and I respect that. And certainly there was a movement in the 90s to take Napa back the other way toward a more French style. Um, it didn't last. It, it ultimately went for a little while and failed. So, uh, so, so the, the style of, uh, of the Napa wine is, is fixed in stone, I think, pretty much at this point, yes. Sometime in the late 70s, the Texas wine industry, the modern Texas wine industry, was starting mm-hmm. to bubble up in a few places around the state. Do you mm-hmm. remember hearing about that? And I do. So at some point, you got real curious. Yeah, and so when I was, I was doing all this traveling, I was a, you know, quirky young person, I think, um, probably explained why I never had any dates, but, uh, I was, uh, I would say that believe it or not, even though I was really young in my early twenties, I was an avid gardener and, uh, I was really interested in horticulture and things like that. And I was traveling to all the wine regions. And so it was kind of a natural, the, that eventually I was going to become interested in grapevines. As I traveled, I kept thinking all you know, to myself, I mean, you know, why can't we do this? You know, I mean, I don't understand why we couldn't do this. And so, um, because of that, I, I don't know, uh, that was when life took the, the, you know, the, the weird turn that it, it did and explained why we are here today. I ended up planting not the first, but one of, of the first in, in that era of, uh, of vineyards that went in, in Texas, uh, I I did consult our, and and I got out and met some other folks. I remember I, I met Bobby Cox in 1979. Bobby's a great guy, and uh, and uh, he was planting Pheasant Ridge at that time. And I met Doc McPherson in '79. Also, that was uh, the first year he had planted Cabernet. That before that he had had some some non vinifera, but but he planted uh, Cabernet in uh, in '79. I went out and talked to him in, in that year as well. And, uh, and then in 1981, I, uh, planted, uh, our first vineyard. So we were a couple years, uh, after them, you know, I think that wasn't probably my original plan, but anyway, that's, that's the, you know, the twists and turns of life and of how it started. And that was in, actually it was close to where I lived at the time in, uh, in Denton County was where I started. The first vineyard had 22 varieties, um, I did something that I would never, ever, ever in good conscience recommend that anyone else do. It's something that I'm hugely opposed to today, but at the time, we really just had no data to go on. It was it was so new and so young, and it was just impossible to uh, to to anticipate where where all that was going to lead. So today, I, I am adamantly opposed to what I would call scatter shooting with varieties that, uh, you know, probably don't make any sense. But I see it, I see it being done all the time. Everybody's, you know, wanting to find some, you know, some magic variety, some magic bullet. And I really try to encourage people knowing how much money we threw at it and how much money we lost doing it it's just not in good conscience and not the smart thing to scatter shoot with money like that and and i that's why i always if i'm ever called to consult with anyone i'm you know i'm just opposed to like i say just scatter shooting with with uh with with money without any real reason to do so you know were you thinking about 
making a commercially viable wine or were you just thinking about how much you love gardening and wanting to give it a try? No, no, I was, I guess my original goal was to give it, you know, five years, get some, get some wine made, you know, see what worked, you know, reorient the planting toward the things that, that worked. And, uh, and then maybe in a timeline of 10 years, you know, have a brand. That was, that was what my, my goal was, or that was what my first thought was. But a lot of things happened. Uh, and I would say that the first thing that was a mistake was uh, I got some very uh, poor advice from some universities that encouraged me to set up a vineyard that was not going to produce quality grapes. And this has been my mantra for our entire life. As far as Inwood as a brand, I think by now pretty much everybody knows that, you know, we have rung the bell and, you know, shouted from the rooftops and, and been the lone voice in the wilderness for, you know, wine quality, wine quality, wine quality, you know, all, all the way around. Whereas, you know, maybe not, not everybody, you know, agrees on that. You know, there was, there's an enormous number of folks in our industry that, uh, you know, have a different idea and a different business plan that re that revolves more about uh, around you know high production and uh, and the the problem is that what that does to the wine quality is just devastating and and it's something that you know has created a a you know negative reputation for Texas wine that we've had to try to live down and we try right here out here in Fredericksburg on Highway 290 here every day you know trying to live that down that that reputation for some of the some of the wines that uh you know regretfully gave people the impression that Texas wine was terrible you know so the only way to increase the quality is to lower the yields that's that's what it boils down to and going back to that first vineyard you know i i set the vineyard up not knowing i set the vineyard up on a basically a vineyard design that was designed to produce you know, eight or 10 tons per acre. And the, we got lots of grapes back, but uh, the wine was terrible. And so, you know, the quest went on. We ended up, uh, ended up not going forward with that project because after my years of dealing in fine wine, the last thing I was going to do was to put out, you know, a wine that was worth, you know, four ninety nine. So, you know, it just wasn't, didn't fit with what my vision was. And, uh, and, and it, it shouldn't have, except that that was the design that we were given and we thought that's what we had to go with. So, so going forward, um, a number, some years went past, by after that. We, we worked with that vineyard for, gosh, I think 15 or 16 years and finally did figure out that, you know, we would have to, lower the yields and, and to, to get better wine. And then we figured out that it was just, you know, because it was set up with the wrong design to begin with, the best thing was just to move on and replant and set up uh, some, uh, some other vineyards. So in 97, 98, 99, and 2000, four years in a row, we planted, we planted vineyards and we planted them correctly with the right design and, by 2003, we had Inwood Estates. So, your original vineyard was it in Denton County? It was, uh huh. And so the plantings that happened 
next? Mm-hmm. Still in Denton County? No. Uh, the plantings that happened next were kind of all over the place, but the most important out of that group clearly was in 2000, uh, Neil Newsom and I planted the first Tempranillo in West Texas. So that became kind of a bellwether, you know, uh, event for the Texas wine industry. I had had an idea about um, Tempranillo for a long time. I had a, a lot of Spanish and Portuguese varieties in my first vineyard as, and they all did great. And, uh, so anyway, um, I think we did the right thing, maybe probably for the wrong reason. Uh, not no looking back, I think that, you know, I'm not sure that the, that the, the logic chain was as tight as, uh, as, as what we thought, but, but it worked. And that was what ultimately was important. Um, Tempranillo is a, is a good grape uh, for for Texas. It's it's a grape that's not as genetically gifted as Cabernet. Uh, I would say is a good way to put it, but still, it's very good, uh, very good grape, and uh, and it's been a a good performer. I think uh, you know in West Texas and and other parts of the state, you know, to a lesser extent, yes. Talk about your winemaking and how did you learn to be a winemaker? Did you have someone take you under their wing? I not really. Um, my my original goal was uh, I had a opportunity to go to the Rhone Valley and to live there and learn to make wine, but um, family illness and other things that you know life intervened and prevented me from getting too far from home. That's one of the way, reasons I ended up planting a you know the vineyard I did, but. Um, I would say no. I would say, you know, we learned to make wine on our own. We did lots of years of experimentation. We weren't as skilled, I'll put it that way. We weren't, we weren't as skilled and didn't have the resources that we uh, maybe, you know, would like to have had in the early years. But ultimately, we worked out the, you know, all the all the issues. So winemaking is, is, is not that difficult if the grapes are really good. That's uh, that's the key, I think. I still think the key is in the farming, and I think the farming is is crucial to the quality of the wine. A winemaker can't create something out of nothing, so it's uh, getting the farming right is the, is certainly the most important thing. One thing that I know is an interesting component of doing a tasting at Inwood is that for your higher end tastings, you taste Inwood wine. Mm-hmm along with a comparison wine from mm-hmm. around the world, a very high-quality wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why is that important, and what does that say about Texas? Well, um, thanks for asking. Um, in, in, the, in, the, in the interest of, of full disclosure, we're not doing as much of that as we did anymore. Frankly, the demand for it kind of died. Uh, and, and I know that to, to someone outside our world, they would think, oh, well, I would think that would be the first thing I would want to do. But, and, and for a long time, it was. We did it for about, I don't know, six or eight years. We had our, our top Tempranillo uh, you know, versus Termontia. We had our top Tempranillo blend versus Vega Cecilia. So, you know, I mean, all, you know, great names. I've even... I've even taken that exact set uh, to Manhattan and done, you know, wine quality seminars and had a lot of New York media, you know, do the same thing. And, 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 and it's very interesting. People always love doing that, and that's fine. Um, however, I think uh, as time went on, it got to a point where we started having people just come in and say, 
oh, that's okay. I just want to taste your wines. I don't really care about, you know, about the other ones or I know what they taste like. I don't need, I don't need to, to do that anymore. And I mean, the, the cost of it was, you know, was expensive. And I think after a while, people just, re- after, the re- after the results were in and they realized that the Inwood wines were just as good, then they didn't feel compelled to have to spend, you know, all the extra money to, to, uh, to do those tastings. I mean, not that I wouldn't, you know, reconsider it if someone, you know, really wanted to, uh, to you know, to do that again. I mean, I would be, I'm happy to do it. It's just that, you know, it's just... It's just really, really expensive, you know. Um, but this has been, um, we did that for a long time just to kind of establish the boundaries for wine quality. And, and in a lot of ways, this is the way the boundaries kind of came down. For example, to get $10 wines in the supermarket, you're going to have to produce, you know, 10 or 12 tons per acre it's going to take that kind of tonnage to get the price down to, to, to that level. And um, if you go to Napa and Sonoma and Bordeaux and Burgundy and all the places around the world that generally produce good wine, it's generally agreed upon. And this is a loose, it's a loose parameter, but it's generally agreed upon that around three tons per acre is kind of the threshold for quality. And I mean, this is everywhere. This is not, just me defending Texas or whatever, but that's pretty much everywhere, even in the best places in the world. Just to make the math easy, let's say you cut your production from 12 tons to three tons, your $10 wine is going to become $40, like just for the liquid content. It's actually more than that because the three ton wines are going to get parked in barrels for a couple of years. And at today's rates, that's going to add about 20 bucks. So in reality, three ton wine what I would consider the threshold for quality is going to need to price out today at about $60. And that's changing, you know, with inflation quickly. But for right now, that's pretty much how it is. The next level down where you really see a huge gain in quality is at about one and a half tons. So here at Inwood, we do a lot of our work. We do make some three-ton wine. We make a three-ton Tempranillo that we're famous for. That's called Cornelius. But then we make a one-and-a-half-ton Tempranillo called Cornelius Reserve that is, uh, you know, twice the price. So now you're up over $100 a bottle, and, uh, you know, you're going to cut your production in half again. Then you're going to double your price again. So hopefully that makes sense to people. In, and But what you gain is density, concentration, uh, you gain, you know, the richness of the texture. It's all those qualities. You know, every time you go down in production, you, you, gain, you gain that. Now, on the other hand, we make a, our top-level Tempranillo, we make at, as, as occurred in years when our yields have averaged about two clusters per vine. And we've only done it three times, but it's uh it's a phenomenal wine and um and but it's expensive you know the the newest version hasn't been released yet it probably will be pushing the three hundred dollar you know area but it's a but it's a tremendous wine and so so understanding those relationships is crucial i have to ask you about this we talked about the length of the growing season and the trade-offs with the antioxidants and so forth what is the ideal drinking window of 
Cornelius Reserve, for example? So I would say like on um, on Cornelius Reserve, the ideal window is probably somewhere around five to seven years in, in that vicinity. And, and I think most of our wines, we are we're targeting a, a window that's somewhere in, in, in that range now. In the beginning, we made clearly some really high antioxidant wines, you know, in 03 and 04 and 05 and 06 and 08 and years like that. And I still have folks that are members or people in our circle that will come up to me and they said, oh, I just had an 06 Magellan or I just had an 08 Magellan and it's fantastic. It's just drinking perfectly right now. Well, uh, that's great, but it's that was 16 years ago, you know. So I I think that, that one of the things we've worked toward is to bring that window down. And, and, and to be fair, the French have as well. And this is a hot topic, obviously, in, in the entire wine world. Let me put it this way. It's not like when the Californians came in with this, you know, ready to drink, you know, fine wine. It wasn't like the French were just going to like back off and say, okay, sure, here, you know, you can just take our market. Like we weren't really, uh, we weren't really using it anyway, you know. So, so the problem in France is, and this is what controls a lot of the, of the, of the growing season, is when does it rain? That's really the number one limiting parameter. So rain on ripe grapes is a disaster. Uh, after that, if it rains very much, you no longer have grapes, but you just have water balloons. And uh, making wine out of that makes a thin, watery wine that nobody wants. And the problem in the North Atlantic is that, you know, it rains uh, in October. So a lot of times, uh, in, in, you know, with respect to the French, I totally understand they're not wanting to throw their entire year under the bus, they're going to pull their crop, they're going to put it in the barns where it's safe, and I don't blame them. Obviously, the big differential for the Californians was that October is their driest month. That's their highest point of their fire season, which is uh, not good, but at least for, speaking for grape growers, uh, being able to leave fruit in the field a little longer in a relatively cool month like October is, uh, is a real plus because those antioxidants can get leached out. And that was the, the key difference in, in being able to create that different style. So, you know, the French have fought back. And I, I know that you've interviewed some other folks and, and they're probably in a good position to talk about some of the technology. But the, 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 the French have fought back with, with technology, actually, is what, is what they've done. They've come up with optical sorting. They've come up with, uh, with, with micro-ox. They've done flash detente. There's RO. I mean, there's all kinds of technologies that they have deployed and regularly do deploy in even the top wineries in, in Bordeaux in order to lower those pyrazine levels and lower those uh, antioxidant levels to make French wine also uh, more drinkable at an earlier time. Speaking as a wine professional myself and watching this go on, I have to say uh, I'm, I'm for it. Uh, I, I really actually am. Um, here's a, a, good, a good analysis. Uh, Pop Clement a great chateau with amazing history founded in 1271. I mean, 
you know, doesn't get more any more traditional than that. We had two of their wines a couple years ago. Um, we had an 06 and a, and a 2016. The wines were 10 years apart. The, the 06 was obviously completely traditionally made, like no technology, just, just like Popcomon has always been made for centuries. And, uh, and, it, and at the time we drank it, it was 15 years old. The 15-year-old Pop Clement won't be drinkable in my lifetime. It, it will outlive me by a long shot. I will be, my, it may not be drinkable in my son's lifetime. Now, some, in the old way of thinking, people would think, well, that's the mark of a great wine. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm an old guy. You would think that I would be like the old, you know, get off my lawn, you know, old man shakes fist at clouds kind of kind of mentality and against change. But I'm actually really not. Actually, the fact that that wine won't be drinkable in my lifetime is, is concerning to me. It, and it's already 15 years old. You know, it hasn't come around a, a drop. But we had the 2016 Pop Clement that was only five years old. And it was absolutely incredible. It was an absolutely gorgeous wine, completely drinkable, completely fragrant, uh, amazing developed, uh, you know, aromatics. I mean, I would I would go back and buy more. So a change in style, clearly. Change, to make it completely change in style, you know. And this is this is going on. This is going on and has been going on in Bordeaux. And uh, and I'm like I say, I'm not against it. I mean, I'm I'm for it. And uh, and I've had. Another one, uh, you know, uh, which I just had one last week, but we've had several times, the 2017 um, Leoville Lascasse, another thoroughly modern version, but a fantastic wine. I mean, again, not cheap. I think it's about $325, but, but just a, an amazing, amazing wine. And, uh, you know, it's only... It's only five, maybe coming up on six years old, but it's just uh, it's just absolutely gorgeous. I'm not against technology, and I'm not against progress. Um, I know that some of some of the 19s and 20s Bordeaux that I've I've had, it sounds like some of the French are trying to dial it back just a hair. And you know, the technology's there for a reason. And it, you know what? If it makes it better, it makes it better. I want to change direction just a little bit and talk about white wine. And I okay. have to ask about Dallas County mm-hmm. Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The um, the Dallas County uh, Chardonnay Vineyard is now um, homes with streets and sidewalks. So, uh, you know, that vineyard is gone. And uh, that represents the perils of suburban farming. Uh, so, uh, you know, sometimes the city will reach out and, uh, and overtake you. And that's kind of unfortunate, but kind of understandable. And, you know, again, it's, it's progress and it, it's just what has to be. It's just what has to happen. Is the fact that you even had that successful vineyard for those years, does that prove a fact that you can grow grapes anywhere? It does. It does. And so here's the, the always the more controversial uh, part of, uh, of, of, you know, a sit down with me is, is like you, you kind of hear all the stuff that, that nobody else, you know, wants to talk about, but I'm the, probably one of the most vocal opponents of the terroir theory. I'm absolutely convinced that I think terroir is basically, you know, a farcical concept. Uh, I don't think there's any scientific evidence for the idea of terroir. Uh, I think that uh, soil and climate have little or nothing to do with the flavor in your wine. 
I've, like I say, I've been doing this almost 50 years. I can cite hundreds of examples of, you know, anomalies, why the terroir theory, you know, is, is uh, you know, doesn't work. But before we go into all that, let's talk about what actually does make flavor in wine. This is, this is where the rubber really meets the road. And what actually makes flavor in wine is two things. It's the exact DNA of the, the grapevine or the grapevine clone that you're working with is, is, is crucial. That's, that's item number one. And number two is the level of ripeness that you achieve by working with, with that vine. So those two things together will pretty much explain everything that you taste in your wine. Um, mostly all of the chemical components that you taste in wine are as many as I, I've read that they're estimating as many as 60,000 different polyphenols that make up all the flavor components in wine. Now, that's, that's a huge amount. These, what we call phenolic compounds, will explain all of the, account for all the aromatics, will account for all your flavor. It'll define the profile of, of the wine that you're, that you're tasting, and, it's the, and will define the difference between, you know, uh, Cabernet and uh, Pinot and Zinfandel or whatever, and, and, and not only varieties, but like I say, also this idea of clones. In Cabernet, for example... I personally grow nine different genetic mutations, genetic different genetic strains of Cabernet. These are these. This is what clones are. The reason I grow nine is because I grow one for its scent of rose petal, one for its scent of orchid, one for its pepper spice, one for blackberry, one for raspberry. I mean, the list goes on. And there's just in the world of Cabernet, there's, I don't know how many, but it's, it's a lot, maybe 80 or 100 that you can order and grow. But in, the, in nature, I would speculate that there could be literally tens of thousands. I don't think we have any idea what is out there in terms of how many mutations of just, alone, just Cabernet alone, let alone all the other varieties that are out there. So it's a it's a much, much more complex world than, than what, you know, the shelves in your wine store make it, make it look to be. This is so important because I think in consumers' minds, like, you think, well, you know, I can go down to, you know, my local wine store and I can get a Cabernet from Australia and a Cabernet from France and a Cabernet from California. We're going to have all of our friends over on Saturday night and we're going to all sniff and swirl together and we're going to try to uh, talk about, uh, you know, the, the fog on the hills and the moon over the Pacific and all this kind of stuff. And in reality, the problem is they're probably not the same vines anyway. So the odds of them, of all those wines having the same genetic vines are, are, uh, are probably zero. So obviously if the vines are not the same, they're not the same, uh, they're, you know, they're, it's an apples to oranges argument, you know, so you can, you can taste and compare all you want, but it's, it's, it's not going to add up. Let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. I've heard that you have an excellent mm -hmm. palate. 
Are you an excellent blind taster? I think I'm pretty good. You know, I mean, uh, I, I, I would, I would say, you know, years of experience, you know, I've tasted wine as far back as 1825. So, I mean, I've got a pretty good repertoire. And are you good at identifying where a wine might be from? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say yes, only because of stylistic traits, but no, because of technology. So I don't, I think in the future, I think the only reason that people could ever identify wine as to where they were was only because of the tradition. It was only because of the, the unilateral practices of making wine in that area. It was, it had nothing to do with the indigenous soil and climate, but it, but because the wines resembled each other and because people, the winemakers were competing in that style, then it created the impression that wines from that area can only taste like that. But now we see a whole new wave of technology. Now we find out, oh, well, like the Pop Clement that I talked about, now we find out, guess what? You know, Pesach Lanyon can taste totally different. And in the future, you'll never be able to know. In the future... I think I think all bets are off because it it was it was a misperception to to start with. It was a it was something that that it only resulted because of the uh, of, of of like I say unilateral thought of how wine from that area should should ha- should mm-hmm. be made. But I don't think that'll I don't think that'll persist in the future. Interesting. You have a bit of a blog, and I've read part of your oh, blog, mm-hmm. and uh, you had. I guess it's been almost 10 years since you Mm -hmm. had a piece of your writing that was also appeared on Texas Wine Lover. Mm -hmm. And it was a kind of real world hard look at some factors of the Texas wine industry, some of which you weren't um, super keen on. We've talked about that some in terms of wine quality. Yeah, I wonder, since almost 10 years have passed... Uh, without kind of rehashing the whole thing, where do you think the industry has gone and what are still the blind spots and the opportunities for the future? So I, I, I'll put it this way. I, I think that in, in a shorter growing season, which is, which is what we have here, we have, a, we have a shorter growing season. And in a shorter growing season, there are opportunities and there are also uh, pitfalls. Um, one of the things that in a, in a shorter growing season becomes crucial. And actually this was the second part of, you know, we talked about the DNA, but this is also that ties into that same topic is there's, there's different ways to drive levels of ripeness. So we have a shorter growing season and to achieve the levels of ripeness, that somebody with a longer growing season uh, achieves the the way that we have to do it is to have less number of clusters per vine. So if we want to compete with Napa, and I know you know I've heard uh, probably a million Texas producers say, "Oh well, we can't make those wines." No, actually, we can. We can totally make those wines, uh, but we have to make them at much lower production yields than what the people in Napa are, are making them. So that means that 
that lowering lowering those yields to get that higher level ripeness that's the second part besides the DNA that's the second part of give you, that gives you the exact flavor you want you have like a lower level of ripeness it's going to be more like a french wine you have a you have a higher level of ripeness it's going to be more like a napa wine we can achieve that because the vine has to work so hard to get the same level of ripeness for if a vine has 80 clusters then it's going to have to work way harder than if it has eight if a vine only has eight clusters then it's going to ripen those clusters very fast and it's going to achieve a very high level of ripeness and the vine's not going to have to work very hard so the the fact is we can we can make those wines we can make those wines however we want now getting to your question is is this I would I would vastly prefer to have seen Texas take the track that Oregon took. Oregon has done what I would consider a pretty good job at positioning themselves in the marketplace with not a lot of wine, but relatively high quality wine. I mean, if you go down to Total in any of the Total stores and you look for Oregon wine, I mean, granted, you're going to see a little bit more of it in the Pinot section, but, you know, generally speaking, it's not, you're not going to have aisles and aisles of Oregon wine, but the wines are all, you know, they're 50, 80, $100, you know, they're all bringing good price points. They're respected. The image of Oregon wine in the marketplace is, is that it's generally good. I mean, that's what most people think. But the image of Texas wine in the marketplace is, is, is not good. It's, uh, you know, people are coming around to slowly to the idea that maybe there is some good Texas wine, but I still hear it every week, week in and week out. I'm in my tasting room every Saturday, and I just get blistered with, well, you know, I, I don't drink Texas wine. I would, I'm, I'm surprised that I'm even here in Fredericksburg. You know, I mean, it's like this this, you know, horrible, you know, black hole of, uh, uh, that we have to, you know, have to fight off. But actually, because of our shorter growing season, we would have been, I think, perfectly situated to emulate the Oregon model, just make less wine, but have everything out there be, you know, higher quality. The, the idea that we were ever going to be able to make you know, $9 Riesling or, 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 you know, $9 Chenin Blanc or, or, or $12 Rosé or something and be in every HEB and every gas station, you know, in Texas was just never, I just think it was, I, I, don't, I don't think it was the market that, that really reflected well on what we can do. In, in we, but in a shorter growing season, we can't carry 10 tons per acre and make a good wine because the grapes aren't on the vine long enough. So that's the problem. So here we are, having come this far in the modern Texas wine mm-hmm. industry, with a tremendous number of new wineries coming online mm-hmm. every year, uh, a lot of development and yeah. viticulture out in, the, especially in the high plains, but now in the hill country and around the state. Mm-hmm. Are there some a couple of things that you would like to see happen in Texas in the next ten years? You know, collaboration, um, innovation, marketing, what have you. Um, I, I, you know, better farming is, is going to be crucial for, for everyone in the future. Um, there's no question about it. I think repositioning vineyards that 
in and and selecting better better DNA. That's and when I say that, I mean not running down every rabbit trail of every variety that may or may, or may not work. Uh, you know, choose the things that that are in the middle of the market that people really want and farm them well. That that that's a formula for success. Number one. So great varieties, top level varieties. You know, if if you wonder what they are, just go into Total Wine and just see what's on the shelf. One thing that I often say is like somehow or another in the Texas grape world, we think we're the first people to come along. No, we have seven thousand years of viticulture before us. Okay, so the the human beings have spoken already. So go with what they want. You know, that's that would be my 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 number one thing. That's why I say I'm adamantly opposed to scatter shooting with with uh, with you know with with different grape varieties. But, uh, but yeah, and, and better farming, that will, that'll be the key. Don't fear having uh, higher price points and, and, and higher quality. Higher price points and higher quality are fine. Premiumization is, some, is a popular word in our, in our industry. This is a category that has been, you know, it's been fairly bulletproof. Um, the other the, the lesser expensive categories, they come up and go down. You know, they're all over the place, but the premium categories are, are fairly bulletproof. But, uh, the, the, but the last part of your question about uh, innovation, very important. And I do believe that there are some, some things like optical sorting, for example, is crucial for a, an area like Texas, any area with a shorter growing season that, ha- that tends to get more uneven ripening could very, very much benefit by, by you know, that kind of technology, for sure. And uh, Colisee, you know, had, uh, has brought the first one to Texas, which I'm sure that, that they mentioned to you. And uh, we had a chance to, uh, to work with it last uh, year and it's pretty fantastic and we're bringing ours in this year so okay. you know so yeah so so innovation I'm, I'm big on innovation yes what is next for you and I know you mentioned that Spencer your son is a winemaker now and what is next for Inwood I think we have a I think we have a bright future we have been on a steady increase in quality ever since 2010 we made we made our first Americana in 2010. That was the first time we made a really ripe Cabernet that, that was, and, and that was when we realized that number one, we could do it and, and how to do it. Um, ever since then, we have applied those same principles every year. Our uh, Spencer has brought a more of a modern type of, uh, type of wine style to us. Uh, it's, a again, a little lower antioxidants, softer tannins, more, more immediate drinkability, less time needed, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I think that, uh, I think we're, we'll continue with that kind of, you know, uh, a modernist kind of approach. I don't, I, I, I really don't see turning back the clock, you know, to, those uh, you know chalky high antioxidant kind of wines that uh, you know that that everyone said that we had to make you know 20 years ago when when I think people just didn't really understand what ripeness in wine was mm-hmm. so uh, so no I think it's, I think the futures futures is 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 bright but uh, for me I don't know um, I wouldn't mind uh, a few years of laying on the beach to tell you the truth that's probably more kind of in my mindset right now so that's, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that'll happen or not, but I sure would like for it to. That's wonderful. Well, 
you have seen firsthand so many changes in the Texas wine industry and I'm glad we had the chance to sit down and commit some of this to audio so yeah. that a lot of people can learn from your experience and perhaps um, give them something to, something to think about because you you have some ideas that are not as mainstream as uh, others they may be hearing. And, Clearly. And, mm-hmm. and if they want to come in and chat with you about it, you're here on Saturdays. I am. I'm here on Saturdays and, and every single Saturday it's a... Uh, you know, it's a it's a debate free for all, so we're uh, we're good with that. Um, you know, uh, there's no it's perfectly perfectly fine. Bring your questions, and uh, and we're happy to uh, we're happy to put on a a good demonstration for you. Well, wine brings people together and gives us a lot to talk about. It so does. I thank you for your time. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Dan. Stay tuned for demerits and gold stars. Today's gold star goes out to Messina Hoff for a blog article they posted about aging wine. They write, while aging is a core part of the winemaking process, most wines are ready to sell after one to two years of aging before bottling. Additional aging gives the overall wine body a more rounded, smoother tannic structure. Wine continues to taste better with age due to a chemical reaction among its phenolic compounds that allows the sugars, acids, and substances in the wine to formulate a more complex and pleasing flavor profile. In the wine industry, the term for vintages that are held back by the winemaker to be re-released and sold years later, these are called library wines. Messina Hoff says that wines that typically age best are those that have a full body, robust structure, and a higher alcohol percentage, and that wines that are best for aging are Sangiovese, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Syrah, and Pinot Noir. They say that not only do these red wines do well, waiting a few years before consumption, they actually need it to fully develop the flavors you love. And this is the key part. They say any wine that is high in tannins or acidity thrives with additional aging. They say white wines can also undergo aging, including Chardonnay, Chenin Blanc, Riesling, and Semillon. These can age for an additional two to four years. It turns out that Messina Hoff has aged library wines available to you for purchase online or in the tasting room, and many other Texas wineries that have been around for a while do too. These wines are not likely to be on your tasting sheet, of course, because they're often in limited supply, but it doesn't hurt to ask what library wines are available. So thank you, Messina Hoff, for this reminder, and sign me up for some of that 2014 Private Reserve Tempranillo. Man, I bet that's good. And the demerit today goes to an unnamed winery with a Hill Country tasting room for what I'd consider slightly deceptive advertising. When it comes to wine competitions, the term double gold has a very specific meaning. It means that every judge on the judging panel rated the wine gold, and only then is a double gold medal declared. The issue I have with this winery is that they recently posted a social media graphic that prominently says double gold, along with a picture of the award-winning wine. Only one problem. The wine didn't win double gold. It won two gold medals in two separate competition tracks. Y'all, two gold medals doesn't mean the wine won double gold. I'm all for advertising your awards, but let's not exaggerate.
so that's it for this episode, but I will be back in two weeks with an interview with John Leahy of Becker Vineyards. Please get in touch. You can send your feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes via email to texaswinepod at gmail.com. And also don't forget to check out any episodes that you might have missed. There's good stuff in every one. And maybe you'll even hear how my skills in interviewing and editing have improved after doing this for almost three years. Lots of new listeners are finding Texas Wine Pod this year. So thanks for sharing the pod with your networks and for commenting on and sharing my posts from Instagram and Facebook. If this podcast resonates with you, please consider supporting it by going to the website and clicking support the podcast. That's where you can donate virtual Texas wine, which is actually just a donation to my podcast expenses like attending conferences and podcast web hosting services. I sure appreciate it. Finally, thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Texas Wine Lover is here to help wine lovers discover more Texas wines, but they're also a resource for the wine industry. They've got a complete list of all the vineyards in Texas. So if you're a winemaker looking for grapes, use this list to find out which vineyards are growing the grapes you're looking for. That's at TXWineLover.com. Cheers, y'all.